Let's pray. Lord Jesus, only you have the words of life. Speak your words and give us grace to hear, to believe, and to obey. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And so begins the book of Ecclesiastes, which certainly ranks among the most depressing books in the biblical canon, does it not? Answer me this. How is it that Solomon, the son of David, the man upon whom God bestowed more wisdom than any human being before him, could pen such a discouraging and hopeless memoir? As Ecclesiastes. How does that work? The book is such a downer that I think Christians are sometimes ashamed of it. When Christy and I, my wife and I, were in college, we were dating, and I can remember visiting her home church in Rhode Island and going to Sunday school there, and the teacher there who, who led the young adults read out of Ecclesiastes, and after reading, he said essentially this, I have no idea why this, this is in the Bible. Maybe it's there to tell us what not to think. And I was shocked at that moment. Here's the thing about Ecclesiastes. It tells us the truth, albeit quite naked truth. You see, Solomon, in his God-given wisdom, had incisive insight into the true nature of things. And Ecclesiastes is a stringently sober look at the plight of human existence in a world that is post-Eden. In the book of Genesis chapter 3, when, when Adam and Eve say yes to evil and no to good, what does God do? He, he introduces a curse into the creation. He tweaks the original design in such a way and for such a purpose that humanity should learn that no good thing comes apart from him. And it says in verses 17 to 19, And to Adam God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commended you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Solomon lived his entire life outside of Eden, just like us, right? Only Adam and Eve know what it was like to dwell within the boundaries of that garden and within, within the bounty of that perfect creation. And of the post-Eden creation, Solomon speaks truthfully when he says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And he goes on to use that word vanity more than 40 times in the book in different ways. Well, what is Solomon even getting at when he uses this word vanity? The kind of vanity that, that Solomon's talking about is, is something a bit different than the meaning that is often used in our day. In biblical terms, vanity is meaninglessness, futility, pointlessness. 
The Hebrew word for vanity, which he uses, translates quite literally a vapor, a breath. It's just a puff of air, and it's gone. What's so striking about the book of Ecclesiastes is that Solomon is talking about all of life, everything, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's quite the blanket statement. When you observe and experience the world around you, as I know you have in your life, so much of it is, in fact, toil and trouble. There's just a lot of trouble in our lives. There's thorns and thistles. There's sweat and there's pain. Not a single person in this room has not experienced those things. It's so obvious to our lives that I don't need to list all the ways in which that's the case. You could list them for me. From the moment we are born to the moment we die, there are innumerable, seemingly endless, sorrows and sufferings we will endure. It's not all bad, though, right? Human life isn't all bad. I mean, Solomon knows that there's still a lot of good and beautiful and pleasurable things in the world, right? Solomon knew that. But he also knew that none of those good things last. They don't last. Everything decays and goes away. Our lives, our bodies, our families, our work, our leisure, our possessions, when you strip everything down, it's all vanity. It's meaningless, pointless, futile. It's a chasing after wind. Now, this is where I think we get hung up, Christians and non-Christians alike. We want to object. Hang on. Is God's word really saying that everything is meaningless? Surely not. It actually is. It actually is, and Solomon is absolutely correct correct to say it, but with one very big parenthetical clarification. Everything is meaningless apart from God. Apart from God, it's all vanity because all meaning, all purpose, all life, and all good derives from God. Nowhere else. Now, this is actually the whole purpose of God's curse on the creation. That's the point. If you've ever read Genesis 3 and like, why did God do that? It's to reveal our lack of meaning, our lack of purpose, our lack of permanence. Apart from God, the creator and sustainer. We don't have it in us. Now, there is another newer meaning of the word vanity. And by newer, I mean within the last 600 years. In the last 600 years, vanity has predominantly meant an excessive focus on one's own abilities or attractiveness to others. If you happen to pick up a copy of the magazine Vanity Fair, which, by the way, you shouldn't, um, but if you do, what you would find is an all-out embrace of this word vanity. Vanity is an inordinate focus upon external and superficial things, particularly when it comes to how others 
view you. Another way vanity is translated is as vainglory. Have you heard that, vainglory? I think this word actually helps describe what vanity is just by the breakdown of that word, vainglory. The Greek word for vainglory is a combination of two words, kinos, meaning empty, and doxa, meaning glory. Empty, glory. Vainglory is to seek glory for oneself in things that are empty. What things are empty? What things are vain? Solomon tells us, all is vanity. Apart from God, all things are vain. All things are empty. God is the meaning. God is the point. God is the purpose of all things. So when God is not in it, nothing is good and nothing lasts. And this is the connection between the first and the second meaning of vanity. The vanity that Solomon describes in Ecclesiastes, that of meaninglessness, that's just the reality of our human plight. It's not an opinion. It's fact. The other vanity, the kind that's so rampant in our materialistic, celebritized, and sexualized culture, describes our human tendency to focus on those very meaningless things, either out of ignorance of God or in spite of Him. If I wanted to show you a picture of vanity, Google would give me millions upon millions of them. Drawing from TikTok and Instagram, from cable news and from primetime reality shows or to pro sports or Hollywood or just about any store you find at the mall, I'm not going to show you those. Instead, I'm going to show you a painting. A painting by a 17th century Flemish artist named Adrian van Utrecht who captures perfectly the dynamic of the two vanities in this painting he calls Vanitas. We see in the painting beautiful and desirable things. Money, flowers, literature, jewelry, wares for eating and drinking and so on and so forth. And yet what can't be missed is that in the center of all of them is a symbol that makes it clear that none of these things last They all die and pass away. And actually, I would say that that even worse, the symbol of the skull suggests that if our focus is upon the things that surround it, we are led to our own death. What is so incredibly ironic about King Solomon, if you don't understand Solomon, you're right not to understand him. He was well-versed in both kinds of vanities. We're talking about a man who was one of the wealthiest, most powerful, and well-sexed men that has ever walked the planet. He had an inordinate desire for pleasurable things, to the eyes, to the ears, to the taste, to the touch. And in old age, which is the age when he wrote Ecclesiastes, he finally understood the depth of vanity in his own vanity. He recognized how meaningless was his pursuit of empty things. In the fourth century, there was a monk named Evagrius Ponticus who categorized what were known in Greek as the eight logismi, or the eight evil thoughts. 
that lead us away from Christ. And vainglory, vanity, makes his list, interestingly, of the eight. However, um, at the end of the, the sixth century, Pope Gregory the Great took his list and he uh, revised it and then he popularized it, which is now known as the seven deadly sins. The seven deadly sins. And unfortunately, vainglory was collapsed into the sin of pride. Indeed, they're related, but there is a distinction. You see, the work which vanity does in us is to cause us to be consumed with appearances and fleeting, temporary things rather than the weighty things of God. What happens is that when we give way to vanity, our greatest concern becomes what others think of us rather than what God thinks of us. You might not know this, but the seven deadly sins all have Christian virtues which oppose them. Whereas the virtue which opposes the sin of pride is well known, it's that of humility, the virtue opposing the sin of vainglory is less well known. It's called magnanimity, greatness of soul. You see, vanity seeks empty glory. But magnanimity seeks glory too, just in the glory for which we were created, namely that of God himself. In fact, biblically speaking, God is the one thing in all of existence that is not vain, not meaningless, which is the very reason we are commanded in the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, not to take the name of the Lord in vain. Do not treat the one thing that is not empty as empty. What then does vanity have to do with Ash Wednesday? You see, Ash Wednesday is an affront, an insult, an undoing of our vanity. You want to know what's not a thing? Beautiful ashes. Wealthy ashes, powerful ashes, popular ashes. We can be so easily led astray into the deceitfulness of vanity, but Ash Wednesday reminds us, just like every single funeral does, that apart from God, everything is vanity. Again, we go to Ecclesiastes, or as I like to call it, Ecclesiastes, where we see Solomon write in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 2, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. He's borrowing from Genesis 3, of course. The thing is that that's pretty much where Solomon leaves it. You read the whole book of Ecclesiastes, and he doesn't really move past that. As he wrote Ecclesiastes, he was simply not able to see the antidote to vanity. The wisest man to ever live in his time and the king of Israel simply couldn't understand how vanity would be overcome by God. And so the book just leaves us longing for some unforeseen divine solution that may or may not come why some perhaps 
Don't think it should, should be in the biblical canon. <laughs> the reason that Solomon could not bring meaning out of the vanity before him was because he did not know that one day the true wisdom of God and the true king of Israel would come to undo the curse. And so the thing to understand about Ash Wednesday is that it doesn't leave us in the dust like Ecclesiastes does. It presents us with the very thing that Solomon longed for but couldn't see. Namely, Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, is God's answer to the meaninglessness and the emptiness of vanity. All of creation was made through him and for him. All things find their fullness in him. All creatures find their meaning in him. All of us find new life in him. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes this very famous passage. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I wonder if you heard the word emptied. In saying that Christ emptied himself, the Greek word Paul uses is kinos, the word we've already mentioned, the word which means vain. Jesus made himself vain like us. He emptied himself of the glory that is rightfully his. Why? To redeem us. To redeem vain things. <clears throat> and now that Christ has ascended, he has reclaimed the supreme glory that belongs to him so that at his name every vain thing should bow to the one thing that is not vain. What we're doing today as we begin the season of Lent, among other things, is to repent of our vanity. We lay aside the vain and empty things that we seek glory for ourselves in. And we turn instead to the only one who is not vain or empty. Thus the psalmist says in Psalm 115, verse 1, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name we give glory. That's magnanimity. When we seek God's glory alone, we seek the very glory for which we were created and the only glory that lasts. And because, this is the wonderful thing, because we are image bearers of God, in receiving Christ's redemption and in seeking his glory, 
we actually find glory. We become partakers of Jesus' glory. So the call today is to turn our eyes away from looking at worthless things. In seeking Christ's glory, we find the only thing that is truly glorious. And the thing that makes everything else glorious as well. And so today, on Ash Wednesday, we turn our eyes, as the psalmist says, away from looking at worthless things, empty things, vain things. And instead, we turn our eyes upon Jesus.